Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you all. The children can be dismissed at this time for the nursery and children's ministry. And if you will, please open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. I'll try to finish what we started last week. And I think we'll actually do it this time. We've been working our way through the gospel according to Mark, in all honesty, just enjoying Jesus. And we come to, as I explained last week, this high point in the gospel according to Mark, not only Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, but then uh, Peter's rebuke of Jesus and Jesus' rebuke in turn of Peter for his misunderstanding of who the Christ is and the ministry that the Christ had come to accomplish. And then as clarity about Jesus' person and his work come into focus, Jesus wants to make sure that not only his disciples, but the crowd that is following him a little bit farther, a little bit outer in that circle of friendships and relationships around Jesus, he wants them to know crystal clear what it is to follow Jesus, or in other words, really what it is to be a Christian. So this morning, I want to read uh, this passage once again in its entirety, but we will, we will focus most especially on chapter 8, verses 34, through the first verse of chapter 9, which really serves as a sort of hinge between this passage and the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus, which we'll look at next week. So if you will, please follow along with me as I read from Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man gain in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we turn to your word, these ancient words, these ancient words which are ever true, you would open our minds and open our hearts to receive them. We ask for the necessary humility that it takes to receive your word. We ask for the necessary longing that it takes to receive your word, and we confess that we are unworthy to receive it. Help us, O Lord, to put off any sin that would clog our ears from hearing your word and to receive it clearly and freely and desirously. Lord, let us remember that this right now is the high point of our worship when you speak to us from the truths of your word. So we want to hear you, Lord. We especially ask that you would... Help us to hear you as you continue to clarify for us who you are, Jesus, as the Christ. Your identity and your mission and your call. We need clarity on this, Lord, because we want to follow you. And yet we know that our flesh gets in the way and the world gets in the way. 
There are distractions all the time. And yet because you have changed our hearts, our desire truly is for you. So refine us, purify our hearts so that desire and that hunger for you would grow more deeply so that we would treasure you more fully so that nothing would be more important to us than you and your gospel. Lord, we believe what you say that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. These words were the words that Jim Elliott scribbled down in his journal on October 28, 1949. Born in Portland, Oregon, in, on October 8, 1927, Jim Elliott was a graduate from Wheaton College in the fall of 1945 and was martyred in the Ecuadorian jungles on January 8, 1956, at the young age of 28. Not long after writing those famous words, Jim Elliott met a former missionary to Ecuador who told him about the Aka people. They were a small, fierce, unreached tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. Their name actually meant savage in their own language. They were known even amongst their own people to be quite cruel. Yet after talking with that missionary, Jim Elliott knew it was God's call on his life to reach those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Elliott assembled a team which included Nate Saint, an aircraft pilot, and they began establishing contact with the Aka people by using Nate Saint's plane to fly over them. They developed a system where they would have a rope hang down from the plane and Nate Saint would fly circles in order to stabilize that rope. And at the end of the rope, they put a bucket. And inside of that bucket, they would leave gifts for the Aka people. The idea was they would circle around and lo- lower down gifts to the people in order to begin to let the people know that they were friendly and they meant them no harm. Eventually, the Aka people started to return gifts to the missionaries. They would take the gifts out of the bucket, and they would put gifts of their own into the bucket that the missionaries would then take back with them. They eventually began to make physical contact, seeing that as a sign of peace and tranquility. And so they started to land the plane near the river where the tribe lived. After various methods of making contact, eventually it worked, And they were able to communicate through a translator, at least in part, uh, some of their desire. However, there was a misunderstanding and a miscommunication and even really a lie spread by one of the tribe members, which then led the Aka warriors to fuel their suspicions already of strangers. And they developed a plot to kill the missionaries. One retelling of that fateful day reads like this. On January 8th, the missionaries waited, expecting a larger group of Aka to arrive sometime that afternoon, if only to get plane rides. Saint made several trips over the Arakan settlements, and on the following morning, he noted a group of Aakan men traveling toward Palm Beach, not Florida. That's what they called the place. He excitedly relayed this information to his wife over the radio at 12.30 p.m., promising to make contact again at 4.30 p.m. The Aka arrived at Palm Beach around 3 p.m., and in order to divide the foreigners before attacking them, they sent three women to the other side of the river. One, Dawa, remained hidden in the jungle, but the other two showed themselves. Two of the missionaries waded into the water to greet them, but were attacked from behind by Nampa. Apparently attempting to scare him, Elliot, the first missionary to be speared, drew his pistol and began firing. One of these shots mildly injured Dawa, still hidden, and another grazed the missionary's attackers after he was grabbed from behind by one of the women. The other missionary in the river, Fleming, before being speared, 
desperately reiterated friendly overtures and asked the Aachen why they were killing them. Meanwhile, the other Aachen warriors, led by Gikita, I think, attacked the three missionaries still on the beach, spearing Saint first, then Macaulay, as he rushed to stop them. Eudarian ran up to the plane to get the radio, but he was speared as he picked up the microphone to report the attack. The Aachen then threw the men's bodies and their belongings in the river and ripped the fabric from the airplane. They then returned to their village and anticipated retribution, and anticipating retribution, burned it to the ground and fled into the jungle. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot was a man who most certainly understood the identity of Jesus Christ, the mission of Jesus Christ, and the call of Jesus Christ to follow him anywhere by any means necessary, even if that meant giving up your own life. Last week, we began to study this particular passage, and we talked about the subject of clearing up the confusion about Christ. As the disciples continue to illustrate and demonstrate their lack of clear sight of Jesus Christ, finally, Peter confesses that he is the Christ. And that was the first necessary thing that we met last week when it comes to understanding Christ. Understanding Christ means making a right confession of Christ, we saw. Jesus asked the disciples who people said he was, and the disciples gave the popular report, John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, which would have been somewhat of a compliment if Jesus had not also been the very Son of God. And to compare God to a man is no compliment. It's in fact blasphemy. So, Jesus then turns directly to the disciples and asks, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the spokesman for the disciples themselves, spoke up right away and said, you are the Christ. Peter finally understood. Yet it was that very first touch, that very first touch that opened his eyes, but he was still seeing with a blurred vision. Peter's confession of Jesus Christ serves to show us the very same thing that any human being who wants life must also make, a right confession of Jesus Christ. You know what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, don't you? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth one confesses and with the heart one believes and is justified. You see, Peter demonstrates for us what is still necessary. There has to be a verbal confession coming from the mouth that Jesus is the Christ. But it's not only a verbal confession, is it? Because Satan himself can recognize the identity of Jesus. But that confession flows from the mouth or out of the mouth from the heart. You see, that belief is seated in the heart of someone whose eyes are open to the truth about Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus said the Father had done for Peter in that moment. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so as we clear up the confusion about the Christ, we understand that Christ, meaning, uh, understanding Christ means that we are to make a right confession. And then secondly, we saw as the event continued to unfold and Peter went from maybe teacher's pet to worse than class clown in the course of one conversation. We saw secondly that understanding Christ means knowing the mission of Christ. Beginning immediately after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, verse 31 says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, Peter's conception of the Christ and the disciples' conception of the Christ was that the Christ was the son of David who would reign on the throne forever. And they're right. 
It's just that they did not understand that they had a bigger problem than Rome. And that was a problem that was not outside of them. But it was a problem, in fact, that was inside of them. Their greater problem was the shackles of chains that their own sin brought into their lives. And that was what the Son of Man came to deal with first. To pay the penalty for his people's sins so that they could be freed from their consequences and freed from their power so that they could demonstrate to the world that Jesus Christ transforms lives. We need to understand the reality is that the Christian life is a life of demonstrated weakness. Certainly it is a life of demonstrated power, But when God chose to demonstrate the greatest display of his power, it was on the cross and in the empty tomb. It wasn't with the parting of the Red Sea. It wasn't with miraculous healings. Though those are certainly demonstrations of God's power, but the greatest display of God's power is the work of God in Jesus Christ to save sinners. That's what the disciples did not understand, though they were about to. As Jesus continues to explain to them who he is, what he came to do, he also now in our passage wants to make sure that they understand that following him means a call to die to themselves. And so we saw first that understanding Christ means making a right confession of Christ. We saw secondly that understanding Christ means knowing the mission of Christ, and this morning we see that understanding Christ means answering the call of Jesus. Understanding Christ means answering the call of Jesus. Look with me at verses 34 to chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus has rebuked Peter after Peter boldly rebuked him. Jesus has equated Peter's, Peter's misunderstanding with the very ministry of Satan himself as he tries to distract Jesus from his ministry of suffering and tempts him with a ministry of power, Jesus tells him to get behind me, Satan. And this circumstance, you can imagine watching, would have been quite awkward. Peter went from being the top dog to being the the chief spokesman about who Jesus is to now being equated with Satan, the archenemy of God. You can imagine the onlookers going, oh my goodness, what are we supposed to do with that? And so Jesus seizes the opportunity. And verse 34 says, calling to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And there we have the call to follow Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus wanted to make sure that the disciples were not misunderstood about who he was and about what he had come to do. He wanted to know, to them to know that what he was about to experience, his suffering and his death and his resurrection, was completely in line with the Father's plan all along. It was no mistake It was the very path that Jesus came to walk. And they needed to know that because they needed to depend upon him for their own salvation. But then in doing that, as they founded the church as the apostles, they would walk the very same road of suffering. And they would teach the churches all the way down to 2023 and however else, however long the Lord tarries, they would teach the churches that the Christian life is a life marked by the suffering of the Christ. I want you to notice a few things. Jesus' compassion comes out again in his teaching. He's got to clear up this misunderstanding. And so he doesn't just call the disciples, he calls the whole crowd. Everybody gather around. I've got something that you need to hear. And then he says, if anyone would come after me. You notice, he's not just talking to the 12 here, is is he? He's talking to the whole crowd, but you know who else he's talking to? He's talking to you. 
talking to you this morning. If anyone would come after me. You see, Jesus flings the gate open wide. But we must recognize that the gate is himself. That there is no way to come to to the Father except through the Son. And if you come through the Son, the Son will not reject you. The Son will receive all those who come to him for salvation. And so he says, if anyone would come after me, and then he gives three conditions for this, three, three commands, really. He explains what his call is. He says, first of all, let him deny himself. Secondly, let him take up his cross. And third, let him follow me. Jesus wants them to understand that the call to follow him is a, is a call of self-denial. It's a call of sacrifice. And it's a call of submission. First of all, he says that they must deny themselves. If they are to follow him, they must deny themselves. Let's think about that for a little while. Self-denial is a key attribute of a self-disciplined life, is it not? You'll find self-denial all over the place. Anywhere there is a, an effort, a concentrated effort to, to better yourself in some way. You want to lose weight? Then you've got to deny yourself those extra calories. You want to make sure that you have enough money to go on vacation? Then you have to deny yourself all those little extra things so that you can save up for that vacation. Self-denial is everywhere, right? But this type of self-denial is much different than that type of self-denial. This type of self-denial goes all the way to the core of who you are. First of all, this type of self-denial begins with denying your own self-righteousness. You see, we're, we're wired to worship something. That's why God made us. We will worship something. We do worship something. And yet, the, the, the thing that we worship and the reason that we worship it, until God opens our eyes, is because we think that thing is best. We either enjoy it most, or we think it makes us look the best to other people. And so when Jesus calls us to self-denial, we need to understand that it's not self-denial that gets you into heaven. As I think about my own life and my own testimony, growing up thinking that I was a Christian, and then eventually reading the book of James, James chapter 1, where James begins to explain what it is to hear the word and not do the word. In other words, to know the Bible yet not live in obedience to the Bible. And James says that the one who does that is, one, is like the man who looks at his face in a mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And when I read that, I was so deeply convicted because I knew that was me. So do you know what I did? I did my best to obey the word of God. And do you know how well it worked? Not at all. But for a solid year or more, I stri- I st- strove? Strove, thank you. It's like a, like a living Microsoft Word to correct you in the moment. I strove to make every effort to obey God, though it was, it was a miserable, pathetic effort. Until one day, God humbled me. And I realized that I had been living my life as if God was an add-on to help me accomplish my dreams and my goals. As if the kingdom belonged to me and I could simply invite Jesus into my kingdom and make my kingdom the best kingdom. See, self-denial must begin, first of all, with a denial of your own attempt to establish your own righteousness. It's not... It's not that Jesus is saying, if you do these things, if you can check the boxes on these things, then you're in. And I'm so happy to have you in heaven. Because, you know, it's only about all stars around here. No, but Jesus is explaining the, the terms of what it is to follow him. 
the disciples would have no interest in following him if it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ to reveal himself to them. And so self-denial begins with a denial of self-righteousness. So you just have to realize that if you're counting on anything in life to make you righteous before God that is not Jesus, then you're counting on your own self-righteousness. And it won't do. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to deny your own pursuit of self-righteousness and look to Jesus Christ and claim his righteousness and cling to his righteousness and believe that him and him alone, that he and he alone is the only way that you will ever be right with God. That God doesn't just sort of clean you up and then send you out into the world to, to be a demonstration of what it looks like to be a faithful follower. But God has sent his son to be the ultimate demonstration. And not just to be the ultimate demonstration, but to be the propitiation. The one who satisfies the wrath of God against you for your sins. So friend, is there any way today in which you are counting on your own efforts to be right with God. Do you understand that God is pleased with his son and any pleasure that God would aim in your direction would only be because you are by faith in his son. It's not because you do a great job in your Bible study. It's not because you are faithful to tell other people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not because you choose to punish yourself on a Sunday morning and wake up and get cleaned up and go sit and listen to somebody talk with a bunch of other people in a room. It's only because of Jesus Christ. And so self-denial, this call to deny oneself, is not a call to personal discipline. It's a call to renunciation of the self entirely. To, to realize that by nature, you are on the throne of your life and you've got to get off and recognize that King Jesus is on the real throne. I'm not saying you invite him to be on the throne of your life. You don't invite the king to do anything. He's the king. Let's get that clear. You don't invite him to do anything. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But that king wants you to realize that you are not in charge of your life. And if you would trust your life to him, then he would be your king who is committed to your good. And so it begins with a denial of our self-righteousness. It, it moves to a denial of our self-will. This is really the ultimate fulfillment of the prayer that we prayed all last January. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to answer Jesus' call to deny yourself? It means to say, my will is done, I take up God's will. Every moment of every day. And isn't it a challenge to check our wills sometimes? We can be doing things and going about our daily life and com be completely ignorant that we're doing it because we want to do it. Or we're doing it in opposition to the will of God. And so it's a, it's a call to die to our own self-will. It's a call to die to our own sinful desires as well. I might want to do this thing because it feels good for a while, but that would not please my Lord. And so I'm not going to do it. Or I may not want to do this thing because it's very, very uncomfortable. But to not do it would not please my Lord. And so I'm going to walk in a way that pleases my Lord because I've died to myself. So it's a, it's a call to self-sacrifice or, or self-denial. It's a call to sacrifice. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. 
countless people all over the world today take up a cross and they put it around their necks and they wear it as a piece of jewelry. And I'm not here to pick on crosses as jewelry. If that's what you want, that's totally fine. But that's not what he means. Roman crucifixion was a brutal, terrible, torturous death. At the crucifixion site, they would put a stake in the ground that was upright. And then at some point, they would strap the crossbeam on the back of the execution, of the one who was going to be executioned or carry it on their shoulder. And they would make them carry it to the point of their execution site. Everyone knew what it meant when Jesus talked about the cross and crucifixion. I don't know how they estimate it, so I'm skeptical of it, but they estimate that there were some 30,000 Jews crucified during the life of Jesus. It was a very, very common thing. And it was not only used as a torturous method of death, it was used as a way for Rome to let everyone know you don't mess with Rome. You mess with Rome, we'll put you on a wooden cross. It was common for crucifixions to happen along the highways so that all the passersby could see what would happen if you defy Rome. They would put them outside of the gates of the city so that everyone would see what would happen if you mess with Rome. When Jesus says to take up your cross, he's not saying put on your jewelry. He's also not saying, you know, if if you have a particular struggle, that's just your cross to bear in life. That's not what he's saying. That's too little to be what he's saying. Jesus is calling us to walk to your own death in order to follow him. David Garland says, disciples must do more than survey the wondrous cross, glory in the cross of Christ, and love the old rugged cross as beloved hymns have it. They must become like Jesus in obedience and live the cross. That's what Jesus calls us to. It's a death to self every moment of every day. A denial of self every moment of every day. A commitment to follow Jesus in the very same footsteps which he walked. Jesus warns his disciples in John 15, 18 to 21, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. It's a far cry from the the supposed sort of bright, cheery, shiny life that often gets presented as Christianity, isn't it? Peter understood this. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, man doesn't recognize God. In fact, man hates God. And so Jesus said, if, if the world insults you, then heaven blesses you. That's how it works. So that's not to say we should go around looking for insults from the world. We should sort of poke the bear every now and then. But Paul promised Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so you have to decide, is following Jesus worth my life? It's not just a call to sacrifice, it's also a call to submission. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Walk with me. Follow me. You notice that Jesus says, I'll lead the way. That's what's implied in following, right? And that's exactly what shepherds do. They lead the way. 
so that the sheep know where to follow, so that the shepherd can calculate their every step. And sometimes the shepherd has to lead them through the valley of the shadow of death, but he'll never leave them. In fact, he'll comfort them right there in that very place. And so Jesus calls us to follow him, to be in complete submission to him. Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's a far cry from if you sin, just ask Jesus to forgive you and he'll got, he's got you. And as I mentioned last week, the danger of things like that is that they're partially true. Christians can not just hold on to the fact, but celebrate the fact that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all righteousness, right? Of all unrighteousness. That's a precious truth for us to to cling to, to practice every moment of every day because I guarantee you, you sin every day. Ask your close loved ones, they'll tell you. And so it's a precious truth to cling to that we, we ask Jesus for forgiveness and he gives it to us, but it's not a license for sin. Following Jesus doesn't mean using Jesus it means submitting to Jesus. It means obeying Jesus. And so Jesus needs these disciples to know what it is to follow him. And he continues to then explain what it is to follow him. He explains the, the call, and then he explains the conditions for following him. Verse 35, he begins to, to give a list of sentences that begin with the word for. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So we need to understand, first of all, that if if you are to follow Jesus, then you must lose your life in order to save it. It sounds backwards, doesn't it? Lose your life to save it? But it's exactly what Jesus is saying. Lay it down. Give it to him. Lose your life so that you might save your life. And notice again, he says, whoever. Whoever, whoever wants to. This call is open to anyone and everyone. We don't have to worry about who's the elect and who's the non-elect. Jesus says, whoever So let me ask you, have you answered this call? Have you understood that life, true life, does not consist in you, but in Jesus Christ? That the one who made all things is also the one who determines what real living is. And the one who made all things didn't just make all things, but he is inherently good. He didn't just make you so that you would obey him. He made you so that you would enjoy him. And you cannot enjoy him apart from knowing Jesus Christ. You can't gain anything unless you first lose your own life. So Jesus says you must lose your life to save it. And then he says that you must recognize what's most valuable in life. Look at verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man gain in return for his soul? Good questions, aren't they? Questions that make you stop and think. Questions that go to the very core of your being. What do you value most? 
What does your life reveal that you value most? What does your time reveal that you value most? What does your spending reveal that you value most? What do your friendships reveal that you value most? What do your commitments reveal that you value most? What does your schedule reveal that you value most? Those are necessary things to think about, aren't they? Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If Satan came to you and said, I will give you all the kingdoms you can see if you just give me your soul, I think you'd know enough to say, I'm not going to take that deal. But let's not forget that Satan loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. He's not going to come with the stench of hell, but with the sweet aroma of the world's allurements. It's all good stuff, and you could have it all. Work harder, do more, manipulate your way into that, climb on that person in order to get to the top. See, those are all temptations straight from Satan. The question Jesus has is, what good is any of that if you lose your soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Just like the psalm said, there's there's no price that you can give for your soul. You can't barter with God. You must recognize what's most valuable in life. You must realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price. It's the treasure that the man found in a field who went away and sold everything he had to buy that field so that treasure could be his. It's the ultimate sacrifice because you recognize not just that if I don't do this, I'm going to go to hell, but you recognize the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And you recognize that this is not a get out of hell free card, but this is life itself. Jesus is beautiful. I don't want anything else except for him. He's worth it. I was reading in that little handout you got in your bulletin. This story happened in Pakistan. It says, home burned, children killed by radical Hindus. Sahid and his wife, Mamona, have six children and live in a small Hindu village in Pakistan. In April 2022, a Hindu religious leader and one, of his, and one of Sahid's relatives confronted Sahid and Mamona about their Christian faith. The religious leader questioned why the couple had not attended Hindu festivals or participated in Hindu prayers. The leader and relative pressured the couple to renounce their faith in Christ, but Sahid and Mamona remained firm in their faith. Around two weeks later, the family's home was set on fire and the two youngest children were killed. When the couple notified the police, the authorities tried to pressure Sahid and Mamona to claim the fire was an accident. How do you do that? How do you endure? I get enduring under the threat of your own life. How do you endure when someone comes and threatens the life of your family? You see, Sahid and Mamona, they recognize who Jesus is. And there's no going back. They not only recognize who Jesus is, but they recognize that Jesus secures their future, that they will feast in the house of Zion. And so they endure the difficulties of life because Jesus is worth it. That's the key, isn't it? The key is not to, not to look on all that you have to give up, but to look on all that you get. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them one tree they could not eat from. 
and they turned their back on everything God gave them and they focused on the one thing that God said you can't have. And you know what? We face that very same temptation. That's what complaining is. We must not focus on what we have to lose. We must focus on what we gain. Forget the world. As the song says, take the world, but give me Jesus. Finally then, in verse 38, he explains that, they must, that we must stand with Jesus now so that we can stand with him later. Verse 38 begins to lay out some consequences. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I remember this verse quite well as a child. And and I don't think anybody did this to me necessarily, but this verse always made me sick to my stomach and made my palms sweat. Because it's most often thought about in in evangelism situations, right? If you're ashamed of Jesus, he's going to be ashamed of you. So, you know, we're going to guilt you into not being ashamed because it really works. I'm I'm not kidding you. I remember being sick to the pit of my stomach. One time a friend, one friend was the national day of prayer. And you know, I don't know if they still do it, the meet me at the flagpole thing where you, you go to your school's flagpole and you get together with the Christians in your school and you pray for your school. Well, guess how many people showed up? Me and my friend. I didn't want to go. I didn't say I didn't want to go because it wouldn't be the Christian thing to do. You're supposed to not be ashamed of Jesus, right? But I didn't want to go. I'm pretty sure he didn't want to go either. But we had each other. And so we just thought, well, we're just, you know, being unashamed. The reality is we were motivated not by a sense of love for Jesus and not by a real sense of being unashamed. We were motivated by what people thought of us, by the fear of man. Because we didn't want our youth group to think they don't really love Jesus. Now the truth is, we didn't love Jesus We didn't know that we didn't love him, but we didn't love him. We loved our own identity more than we loved him, which is exactly why we were ashamed. See, Jesus is not trying to guilt you into telling you, you better tell people about me, because if not, me and my father, we're going to get you. My holy angels, they're coming for you. Now, the reality is, these are consequences that Jesus is laying out. But remember who's in the crowd listening to this call? A guy named Peter. Who not many days from now, not many weeks from now, denied that he knew Jesus three times. And yet when he saw Jesus on the shore after his resurrection, what did he do? He didn't hide from Jesus, he went to Jesus. Because he recognized that he's a sinner and he needs Jesus. And then who became continually the chief spokesman for the church after he was filled with the Holy Spirit? Peter, the one who was ashamed of Jesus and who denied Jesus three times. You see, my friends, the good news is that Jesus takes a bunch of cowards who are ashamed of him. He changes their hearts, he fills them with his spirit, and he uses them to tell other people about him. Even if their palms sweat and they get sick in the pit of their stomach sometimes. You remember how Paul said he went to the Corinthians? In much fear and trembling. Now, if, if we were to identify some apostles today, and we won't because there aren't any, But if we were and we developed a a job description of an apostle, I don't think we would list must be in fear and trembling. If If you don't have much fear and trembling, don't bother to apply for this position. I don't think we would list that, would we? Because we think in power. But God thinks in weakness. What does he tell Paul? My strength is perfected 
in your weakness. You see, the Christian way of life is not a way of life that involves power, not our power, but is a way of life that, where, that means that I continually recognize I'm nothing, and Jesus is everything, and Jesus loves people who identify themselves as nothings. And so Jesus is not trying to guilt trip anyone. However, he is laying out the consequences. But the reality is, if you recognize who Jesus is, you'll not be ashamed of him. You may get nervous at times. In fact, I would say you will get nervous at times. But you'll look not to what you have to sacrifice. You'll look to what you get in return. And you'll realize that when you put Jesus on that side of the scale it tips the scale in his direction every single time, no matter what the cost might be. And so look to what you get. And and this is, I think, what Jesus is doing in chapter 9, verse 1, when he says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. All kinds of different options for interpreting that. I think this is just an explanation of the transfiguration. Jesus is saying to them, I've told you some hard truths, but be encouraged because you are going to see, some some of you standing here today listening to my voice, says Jesus, you're going to see me revealed in all my glory. And it left such an impression on Peter that you can read about in 2 Peter chapter 1. When he sees the display of Jesus in all his glory, and he needed that. Because Peter's life is hard. But Peter needed to know that the finish line is far better than the race. So that he could run the race with endurance and claim the prize on the other side. Glory. And the very glory of God himself. So Jesus doesn't just say, you better do this or else. Jesus wants the disciples, Jesus wants you to know that there is a great reward that surpasses anything else. When you see him in all his glory, face to face, when he has his resurrected body, when you can look at him, you can touch him, you can hug him, he can hold you, you can hear the vocal cords in his body making noises to speak words to you. That's the finish line. And that makes it all worth it, doesn't it? Turns out Jim Elliot was right. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your glory. Thank you for your instruction to us. Thank you for the gift of your righteous life. As we come to your table now, Lord, pray that you would prepare our hearts for that very thing. In Jesus' name, amen.